the geopolitical historical uh, argument that he had was that with the collapse of Rome in the West and the barbarian invasions, right, that you have in uh, 400 or so, 410, whatever it is, um, you get a, a vacuum that the papacy filled. So because there was no longer really a state apparatus in the West to provide this sort of political unity to the people in the West, you got a papacy that sort of filled that vacuum. And it was a natural cultural center in the West. Rome is the patriarch of the West in the Orthodox view. But as we know, right, the, uh, the capital of the empire shifts to Byzantium, a.k.a. Constantinople. So Byz Byzantium becomes the imperial uh, seat, the center of the empire. And so we can grant and we can understand why the papacy uh, filled that vacuum and began to have uh, that, that temporal power. Um, but we do think that there, there can be the beginnings of problems in certain areas of the church, even, uh, even in the period or in the time when the church was united, right? So even for the first thousand years of the church, you can have creeping problems in the West, such as the idea that, uh, you know, that, that the papacy can become universal archbishop in some exclusive sense. And that's why we, w we would refer to Pope St. Gregory the Great's letters um, about, I think it's John of Constantinople, right, where he says that if any, anyone claims to be universal bishop in this exclusionary sense, they are antichrist. So I understand he was a pope, um, and we believe that Gregory the di Dialogist, a.k.a. Pope St. Gregory, is a saint. But we, ha we also have Gregory saying in his letters that the Petrine Sea, right, is Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. And you'll notice that after the first millennium, that uh, that idea is abandoned. There's no idea in the, the, the second millennium that this, the, the chair of Peter is shared by three patriarchates. That's gone. And I don't know if Roman Catholics don't know that, right? But it's in, it's in um, the letters of Gregory. And it shows us that the... Um, but the attitude uh, was not the Vatican one attitude, right? So it's letter, here it is, to Pope Eulogius, Pope of Alexandria. So you understand that he's recognizing and calling the Patriarch of Alexandria Pope. That's an ancient title for not just uh, Peter in Rome, but also uh, Alexandria. And he notes that the chair of Peter saying that himself now sits in the person of his successors. So here's Pope St. Gregory the Great explaining the notion of Petrine succession and that he does sit in the chair of his successors. Is this something relegated only to Rome? I indeed acknowledge myself to be unworthy not only in the dignity of such a preside, uh, but even in the number of such a stand. But I gladly accept all that has been said. Here's where the, pap the papacy really becomes a geopolitical power. Gregorian reforms. Here's where the, pap the papacy really becomes a geopolitical power. The Gregorian reforms of the 11th century signal for the Western, Western Church a radical departure from the attitude of the seven ecumenical councils. This is precisely what's admitted by Yves Congar, right? This ancient collegial structure is now re replaced in the West by a unilateral papal monarchy exercising authority that was highly centralized in the form of a church government. This ultimately controlled every aspect of church life. 
all the way down to the point of deposing kings, forming uh, geopolitical wartime alliances. If you've seen the Borgias, which is really good, um, go watch the Jeremy Irons Borgias. I think it's like episode, what, four or five? And, and Alexander the Sixth is like, if you don't come fight for me, uh, you're excommunicated. <laughs> I mean, literally, like papal armies, right? So for 164 years, there was a Germanic control of the papacy. 21 of 25 popes were actually appointed during this period by the German crown. Now, wait a minute. Remember, part of the problem was investiture, right? Was the, the kings appointing bishops. And we're told on the part of many Roman Catholics that the papal states, the papacy is there to solve this problem. Right, because now if you have the Pope above the, the kings and above the emperors, then he can excommunicate the kings and emperors and it won't, we won't have this problem. But now wait a minute, for 164 years, the papacy is literally controlled during this period by the German crown. In fact, Henry III deposes several popes. So... This argument of the, 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 the East is Cicero Papist is not a very good argument, right? You're throwing stones in a glass house. And this goes back to the Frankish influence and control, right? Ultimately. Pope Leo IX is the first pope in history to uh, personally go to war. Leo IX is uh, who institutes the notion of holy war and the idea of warrior monks. Do you understand that that had never existed? Now, you could have the emperor, the Christian emperor, defending the church as the, as the head of the state, but for the church to go to war and proclaim holy war, this has never existed in Christianity. Pope Leo IX was the first pope to wage war personally, and when he conducted disastrous campaigns against the Normans, he ended with his being taken prisoner, as we saw in chapter 4. The spectacle of priests, bishops, and monks bearing arms and shields and swords covered in blood came as a shock to the Orthodox East. Uh, the Byzantine, typically, Byzantine priests who took up arms against Arabs were deposed or excommunicated due to the violation of canon law. In fact, the very notion of warfare itself as, quote, holy war is something that, that arose particularly in the West. And this is where you get Benedict of Clairvaux beginning, coming to the defense of this doctrine. Now, the next big step in uh, papal geopolitical power is, of course, Dictatus Pape. And I think there's some academic sources that do have Dictatus Pape online. So let's take a look at Dictatus Pape summary. <clears throat> and I think you'll notice if you're, you know, if you're not familiar with these topics, these are the dictates of, of the document Dictatus Pape. So I'll read a little bit of what he says. It was the claim of temporal power which historian Arnold Toynbee called the great Hildebrandine error. This gave rise to the Gregorian Revolution and its greatness, the papal Gregorian Revolution. Um, it was precisely this claim that ultimately undermined the spiritual authority of the papacy that resulted in the Great Western Schism. 
You hear me, guys? This is what leads to the papacy going to France for 70 or whatever years. Leaving on the eve of the Protestant Reformation, a European people weary of the struggle between the Pope and the kings. They vowed to rule in their own respective kingdoms outside of interference. So in other words, a lot of this prepares for the Reformation. So a lot of people talk, like to think of the Reformation as primarily a theological thing, and there's a, there is a lot of theology involved in the Reformation, but I hate to break it to Protestants and Roman Catholics. A lot of the Reformation is also uh, Germanic kings supporting Luther and wanting to go to war and oppose the papacy. And while I agree that the Protestant Reformation was a revolt, they, they revolted due to the outrageous opulence and corruption in the papacy. And, for example, if you watched uh, the Borgias, the TV show, if you watched season one, do you remember the, do you remember Savonarola making an appearance? And why was Savonarola such a controversial figure in that time? Because he preached against usury and the out outstanding corruption in the papacy, in the papacy's geopolitical temporal interference. So in other words, even people in the West, like Savonarola, recognize the problems that we're talking about. Now, I understand that those moral problems might not be the ultimate proof or defeater of the papacy per se. I understand that. Although, I think it's a stronger argument to point out that all of this is a new development that is contrary to the canons of the first seven councils. To me, that's a, that's a pretty much a nail in the coffin argument. But even if you wanted to uh, set that aside and you wanted to argue that, well, you know, the, Re the Reformation was still a, refer uh, a revolt, uh, there, there was a reason for it. And there were people who preceded the Reformation who had legitimate concern and legitimate critique in regard to corruption, in regard to the papacy going to war, in regard to the constant squabbles with the kings. Because the papacy had declared this position of dictatus pape. So what were the dictates of dictatus pape? The Roman church alone is founded by God. The Roman pontiff alone can be called universal. He alone can depose or reinstate bishops. In a council, he alone passed a sentence. Now remember, when I asked Joe in the discussion, why would the council of Constance be something that the three popes submit to? My point was to show, to show that the popes are willingly submitting to a council. Does that fit with Dictatus Pape? The pope alone might use the imperial insignia. You see that one? The pope alone, all princes will kiss his feet. This name alone will be spoken in the churches. This is the only name in the world. It may be permitted for him to depose the emperors. He may be permitted to transfer all bishops if needed. So you'll notice that this is when we get this shift, and now the Pope doesn't just run and control all the temporal leaders in the world whom he can excommunicate at will. He can now uh, depose and decide and determine the bishops in anywhere in the world. That had never existed before. Do you understand there's no canon in the first thousand years of the Church that the Pope determines every bishop in the world? And it's obvious from a geopolitical standpoint that the papacy did that to make sure that all the bishops in the world are under the papacy. It's pretty obvious motivations. And do you understand that this is a radical innovation? 
Do you see anything like Dictatus Pape in the first thousand years of Christianity? Right? I'm not talking about honor given to Rome. I'm not talking about canonical privileges. Do you understand this is way, this is light years beyond that. And so that's why the Orthodox Church says this is a huge radical innovation. This is light years beyond Peter is the first among equals. Peter is the Corpheus of the apostles. Okay, none of this is in the book of Acts. None of this is in Irenaeus. None of this is in Chalcedon. And so now we offer up here a very brief reading. And it's the audio book by J.A. Wiley. It's a classic of Reformation and Protestant eschatology from 1888. And J.A. Wiley, the author here, writing the classic Papacy is the Antichrist. So, of course, we have to include this. It's being offered here by Stillwater Revival's books. So as we go forward, uh, let's just listen to this fascinating clip and let this kind of add to the discussion as we go. Let us mark how like Antichrist was to be to Christ in the particular just noted, all power. Antichrist was to come with an assumption of power, an air of majesty, as if to say, I am the son of the highest. His look, how lofty. His words, how stout. So had Daniel in the night visions beheld him. He waxed exceeding great, says Daniel, toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. He stood before the prophet, his feet planted on the earth, his head among the stars, claiming lordship over both worlds. He waxed great even to the host of heaven, and he cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Daniel 8, verse 10. All power, said Christ to his disciples, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This power was the eternal gift of the Father to the Son as mediator. This power he wielded from the first moment of his entering on his work of mediation. Though veiling it during the days of his humiliation on earth, this power was in him and showed itself at times in some stupendous act. The elements of nature were obedient to him. So too were the spirits of darkness, and not less, the angels of heaven. If need were, he had only prayed to his father, and the celestial squadrons would have hastened to his aid. Satan could gather enough from ancient prophecy and song to show him that such power was to be the attribute of the Messiah. I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth, so sang David. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Such was the glory which the coming Messiah cast before him in prophecy, ages before he came. Satan must needs send forth his counterfeit Messiah with the mock symbols and attributes of a like power. Antichrist, too, cast his shadow before him in prophecy before his actual coming as the triple-crowned chief of the papacy. Daniel had seen his day afar off. How he contemplated and spoke of him we have already seen. With a few graphic strokes, he paints the whole history of the papacy. He traces it from its insignificant beginnings till it reaches its amazing and portentous height. We see the first sprouting of the little horn. We see Caesar vacate his seat. We see the vandal, the ostrogoth, and the longobard plucked up before it. We see it rising by leaps and bounds, and now its head is among the stars. We see its stout looks, we hear its great words, and we witness with an awe bordering on terror its truculent deeds. He tramples on thrones, he roots up nations, he plucks the stars from their orbits, 
In fine, he does all his pleasure, and there is none who can withstand his power or say to him, What doest thou? John had a nearer view of the Antichrist in the visions of Patmos. He too, like Daniel, is struck with his mighty and apparently irresistible power, and he makes this attribute prominent in his portraiture of him. John had known the vast prerogative of the Roman emperors, but here was a measure of power which surpassed that of the old masters of the world, and which appeared to the apostle more than human. In fact, he expressly calls it the gift of the dragon. The dragon gave him his power, says John. What the dragon gave to the Antichrist was not the power of the old Roman Empire, but his own, that is, the dragon's power. Quote, and they worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast, that is, the temporal and spiritual monarchy which forms the papacy. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. That's Revelation 13, verses 2, 4, and 7. In his intercessory prayer, we find Christ saying, Father, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. The power here said to be given the Son over all flesh was not his power as God. That could not be given him, for he possessed it inherently. It was his power as mediator, and the end for which it was given is especially noted, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's John 17, verses 1 and 2. In like manner, the power over all kindreds and tongues and nations, which the dragon gave to the deputy whom he sent into the world, was a gift, and it was given for a draconic end. And accordingly, no sooner is this power conferred than we hear a chorus of worship ascending to the dragon from all them that dwell upon the earth, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8, an obvious contrast to the company referred to on our Lord's intercessory prayer, them whom thou hast given me. And next, in meet accompaniment of the worship offered by those who had made the dragon their god, is the roar of blasphemy which is heard rising and swelling to heaven. There is given to Antichrist a mouth, and the opening of his mouth is as the opening of the doors of the pit. There issue out of it great things and blasphemies. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And the scene finds fitting outcome in the proclamation of war against the saints, which continues to be carried on all through his predicted term of power. Yes, verily prophecy makes no mistakes, and history makes none in interpreting it. He who hath understanding may read of the visions which were seen on the banks of the river of Uli and in the Isle of Patmos, and the events which have since passed over Europe. Let us now open the roll of Christendom. Let us survey its ages from the 5th to the 15th century. We are conscious at first of gazing only at chaos, the crowd of actors, and the conflict of events but distract and perplex the mind. Europe is a tumbling sea in which the old nations are being engulfed and new and barbarian races are arriving to take their place. We can discover neither unity nor progress in the drama. All is tumult and darkness. Let us shut up the roll. But stay. Before putting it away, let us search it again. And it may be we shall find footsteps in these great waters. The cloud begins to lift in order to appear. The ferment in the minds of men gives birth to a great system, as yet without form or name. The materials of which this system, not yet constituted, is composed, are drawn from a great variety of sources. Ancient paganism, 
Druidic and Scandinavian superstition, Jewish rabbinicalism, and Oriental philosophy all contribute their share to it. A corrupt church arranges, combines, and concatenates these heterogeneous elements and stamping them with its own impress presents it to the world as Christianity. The new worship must have celebrants. A human agency gathers round it and that agency comes gradually to be summed up and embodied in one great personality. Let us mark this Colossus. His visage grows as the centuries revolve and comes at last to look forth upon us distinct and stout and terrible. But it is not new. We have seen it before. It is the same that looked forth upon us from the prophecies of Daniel and John. It is the same that shows itself incarnated in the popes of the Middle Ages. Let us mark how complete and perfect an incarnation we have of it in Innocent III, in whom the popedom came to its full growth and showed itself to the world in all its superhuman magnificence and grandeur. During the terrible pontificate of this man, all that prophecy had spoken of the Antichrist was verified in fullest measure. Its predicted height of arrogance, of blasphemy, and of domination was reached. While this mighty pope stood over it, Christendom was still with fear. The stricken kings and nations cowered beneath him. He was God's vice-regent, and claimed to be obeyed with the instant and profound submission which is due to the eternal king. He promulgated the dogma of transubstantiation. He initiated the holy office of the Inquisition. He launched the crusades against heresy and heretics and dealt his thunderbolts of interdict and excommunication all round Christendom and beyond it, crushing everyone and everything that dared to lift up the heel against his pontifical will. If this is not the Antichrist, then Antichrist we never can see. For what more can we have of any prophecy than a complete and perfect fulfillment? And this is a complete and perfect fulfillment of the prophecy of the power and pride of Antichrist. The power of the man of sin will come again before us farther on. Meanwhile, we pass to another point in the parallelism. Chapter 10, Signs and Wonders of Christ and of Antichrist. This was to be a notable characteristic of the Antichrist. So I'll make a note of that, but we only added a 10-minute little spot there in the entire reading of the book, which you can imagine is several hours. So if you want to go back and check that, we'll have it available in the notes there. But it only give, serves to give you a sense of the, the profound article of faith and the embodiment and fulfillment of Scripture that the Antichrist takes on here in the person of the Pope of Rome. So we just want to make sure that you fully understand the characterization of that and fully grasp intellectually how important that was and still is across the world. And so the veneer of globalism and of the United Nations, World Health Organization, you know, World Bank, Vatican Bank, of supposed legitimacy and sovereign banking, credit ratings, international elite status, that we hold these individuals in such high regard and they ultimately are the embodiment and the birthing of a new technocratic world government and globalism. So the EU, even the Order of Malta itself, which are the, the Knights of Malta in the island fortress there. And ultimately, you can see that they have their own seat at the United Nations and are a sovereign nation. And they are, you know, an offshoot of the Vatican power in Rome there in Italy. So, so it's an extension of the power of the European super state that's growing there. And we have to do our best to inform you about the, the nature of what's arising, what, what we're going to see 
and the emergence of this idea of this beast system or world empire. So the in going into prophecy, the symbolism of the beasts with various features and heads and horns and so on are really descriptive imagery of world kingdoms and world empires. And so that's kind of what we're going to do our best to elaborate on and do our best to leave an exegesis here that is fulfilling and gives you a, a total picture of what role the future Pope of Rome is going to, to play here as we go forward and we recognize that, that presently the papacy is run by a, a de Jesuit the archbishop from Argentina. And so there were war crimes issues there and, and warrants out for his, for Margaret, Mar- Mario Bergoglio, you know? So that's one of the ways that they move the, the ball forward and cover up their crimes. And you can see that happens in the deep state in the United States and it happens uh, in the Vatican too. So he was involved with the, the dirty war and had uh, been involved with I'm not an expert on it, but apparently involved with the a whole bunch of disappearances and murders. And so they advance him forward eventually and he becomes the, the Pope. So it's, it's a, it's a crazy town. It's a, it's a clown world we're dealing with. So let's move forward here as we explore the subject. So we have to understand that the idea that the, the Roman Pontifex Maximus was the Antichrist of Revelation in Scripture, and that the whole series of these popes in, in a row, all the way going back all the way to Constantine and, and to Julius Caesar, this entire abrogation of the Republic of Rome and the affixation of the dictatorship of Julius Caesar to become this ongoing, never-ending religio-cultic despotism that would over time go on unabated in this unbroken chain of secession for thousands of years, all the way up into the papacy and all the way up through our times, the figure of this tyrant, this wolf in sheep's clothing, this tyrant wearing the, the white vestiges of a priest of Jesus Christ, right? And claiming to come in the imperial absolute authority of heaven and earth, right? So these are the claims, the absurd claims made by the papacy, to rise from just being an ordinary bishop there to bring care and charity to the poor people and the widows now rising to command Kings and become a worldwide global government, right? Isn't that what the the papacy was at its height? And so the restoration of this global government and this papacy is what people talk about in revelation. One of the facets of the interpretation that the, the great beast who would receive a head wound and was nearly killed, is revived and restored again, and kind of comes back to life. And so that's why you can see this imperial beast, this imperial system of the beast of Revelation that once was in command of the Holy Roman Empire and all of the kings of Christendom, and the actual definition of Christendom itself rests in with the papacy. So this idea that the papal authorities were destroyed in 1799 and carried on for all the way until 1933 before they were restored once again under the Lateran Treaty so that the papacy is once more a civil king under law with sovereign immunity, sovereign plenipotentiary authorities. That's why they can issue stamps and they can issue banknotes and they have their own banks. They have their own, their own standing security militia there at the Vatican. Advanced intelligence operations and weapon systems are there. And the papacy is no longer just a pastor at the local church, but he's a civil monarch and a sovereign under law. So this individual we're talking about begins to fit perfectly with the description of the Antichrist 
in Revelation because the Antichrist ultimately would rule the kings. And once uh, the, the papacy would rule the kings and the Holy Roman Empire led by Germany. But today, the, the Vatican has begun to rule over the European Union under the, Lo- the, under the Rome Treaty and the Rome Statutes, right? Where the, that's what created the International Criminal Courts. That's what created the system of the European Union and, and allowed for a financial structure to create the euro. And if you go look at the euro, you can see that there are many issuances of the euro with the, the Pope's face on the money. So this brings us back full circle to the days of Jesus Christ when he held up the coin and said, whose face is on this coin? And they would say, it's Caesar's face. It's the face of Pontifex Maximus. And the same is now true today. The best way to illustrate this dynamic that we're discussing here is to go back and look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if you go back to 1647, the Westminster Confession of Faith states unequivocally that, quote unquote, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. So we'll introduce this information here, the interesting article. The above is from the original 1647 version of the Westminster Confession of Faith. However, there can, for many denominations... However, there have been updated versions since. For many denominations, it now reads, quote, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any, in any sense be the head thereof, unquote. This newer version is accepted by various Jesuitized or other denominations, as it, as it were. Of significance in the newer version is that entire section regarding the Antichrist has been removed. The change could be called a purposeful ambiguity. It neither states that the papacy is or is not the Antichrist. In defense of the 1646 version, it can be said that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. And it will just now offer some fascinating biblical scriptures to point out that there can be no other vicar of Christ or any other sub-ruler or temporary vice-regent of heaven that will rule over the church. It's just not. The truth is the scriptures state quite the opposite. So let me carry on with this little brief article. Many disagree with a lot of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. One of the greatest heresies of Rome is that their exaltation of a mere man, their pope, to the place of Christ. I refer to this as a foundational heresy of the Roman system because from it flows so many other doctrinal errors and misunderstandings. The pope or bishop of Rome takes the title, quote, Vicarius Christi, which in Latin means vicar of Christ. And of course, they got that from Constantine. That's where they would pick up that term, Vicarious Christi. The other word, vicar, means instead of. In other words, Rome considers the Pope as Christ's replacement, his representative, ruling as the supreme head of the universal church on earth. However, this is the direct contradiction to Scripture. There is only one high priest who is Christ Jesus the Lord, Hebrews 7. Jesus is our high priest forever. There is no other priest of the same measure or stature of Christ that could be said to be our leader in the church. We might say that the only biblical vicar, quote-unquote, is the Holy Spirit. Jesus states in John 16, 7, Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, not the Pope, as our counselor, teacher, or guide into all truth. Jesus warned that false teachers and false prophets would come. Jesus told us of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who would exalt himself to the place of God in the temple. The Westminster divines soundly reasoned the papacy fulfilled these titles because it claimed to rule the universal church, 
which is the temple of God. And when one usurps Christ's place, they are now the enemy of Christ. So in a sense, the Pope is an antichrist. However, I also understand that the reason for the updated version of the confession, the original version which read, but the Pope is that antichrist, that man of sin, the son of partition, unquote, seems to imply or at least may lead to the misunderstanding that papacy is the only antichrist. But John wrote, quote, Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So there we go. It hits that scripture I was trying to hit, which is describing how that there is an, a final Antichrist that is coming, but many Antichrists have come. So that, that does away with this whole idea that there's this Nicolaus Carpathian final figure, some some geopolitical... Obama or Bill Clinton type guy that pops out and he shakes hands and he, he makes these world deals and he gets all the kings of the world to submit to him and everyone worships him. It's not going to happen like that. The individual that's going to get everyone to worship him and get all the kings of the world to submit to him is already exists and there have been many forms of this Antichrist in Rome. And then now that it's the last hour, we can see that there is the final Antichrist is coming. So that, that's why it's so crucial when you look at this First John 2, and you read that in the scriptures and you can understand how there are many Antichrists. So let's carry on with the article. We observe that scripture states there are many Antichrists, unquote, and that some had, quote-unquote, already come, even in John's time, which was before the official period of the Roman Catholic Church even existed. Also, it appeared from reading John that it, it is more proper to speak of the spirit of the Antichrist. So this is a really interesting little article with just good scriptural reference, good discussion, and pointing out that the, the Westminster Confession of Faith existed for people to swear allegiance to the proper church, the Protestant scriptural church, and away from the Roman system of rituals, which had the Antichrist papacy as its head. And it should not be go as any surprise to you that we have in the magisterium and in the training up of, of the priests, this fulfillment of the priesthood in Rome, where one becomes an altar Christus. And you can look this up yourself. When you become an altar Christus as a priest, you become an alternate Christ and you become a replacement Christ. And as a father Mulligan, as a father Smith priest guy in the church, they call you father, not because you are a father. You're supposed to be celibate, not have any children or be married. So it's kind of bizarro that you call, they call them father. But the point is, is that you're supposed to be the, the spiritual father, or the paternoster. When you go back to the Mithraic ritual, it's the, the, the father priest, the paternoster. And in Rome, it's the, the father priest. And that paternoster is supposed to be celibate and ultimately not have any real children and is called father under the patronage in the patriarchy and the fatherhood of the Roman papacy. So the Holy Father, the Roman Pope, the Roman Pope, the Holy Father, that patriarchy is that system of priestcraft under which these little little priests or little popes or, or little fathers are carrying out their rituals. So it could be said that this whole spiritual structure, like Jesus, when he described the, when he described Satan, he said that he was the father of lies. So here we have the patriarchy of lies, the, pa- the, the papacy of lies. And this whole system, the spirit of Antichrist or Alter Christus, this whole system is a system of Antichrist and a spiritual condition that these people are in. So as we're sitting here together trying to work out the, the details and the finer nuances of all this 
discussion here regarding the, the history of the Protestant Reformation and ultimately the Counter-Reformation led by the Jesuit order out of the Council of Trent. And in the Council of Trent, they declared all schismatics and all Protestants and Reformers and Jews and anyone else who doesn't believe the way that their doctrine articulates to be heretics and to be accursed. And they, of course, declared an eternal curses, a hundred curses on all the individuals they were going to build the Counter-Reformation against and ultimately destroy. The Protestant Reformation itself would go on to, like we said, do very many things, and one of them being the the building of the Declaration of the Independence and the, the courage as the men there having their Bibles and reading the scriptures and being encouraged in God and the Lord, Jesus Christ, to fight the righteous fight in the cause of liberty and to establish the American Revolution and the Bill of Rights and ultimately the American Constitution were all byproducts intellectually and spiritually and historically of the Protestant Reformation. So now these old systems of despotism, the old world order, if you will, it's fascinating because we have this paper greenback money with old 1773 Illuminati symbols on it, right? It's kind of weird because we were here to establish liberty and freedom and the right to bear our arms and to bear our Bibles. And of course, if you go back to the degeneration of Europe into the flames, first of the Inquisition and later of the Illuminati Jacobins and their political machinations, you can see that the the Jesuit order, even at the time when they went under their extinction, their period of extinction, when the Pope Clement XIII and the XIV, respectively, both signed the documents and, and apparently were poisoned and killed, in order to censure and to dismantle the Jesuit order. Of course, they would come back into play by 1812. But during that entire time, it seemed like that they were operating as the Illuminati Jacobin agents all across Europe. And so you can see that it's fascinating now that through the conquest in Washington, D.C. of 1933 with FDR, that we find that we have this money system established in 1913, right? This money system of the Federal Reserve notes. And of course, you you were going to see the Illuminati symbols on there the old Egyptian pyramid and all seeing eye and yada, yada. But of course you can see that that money system that is now destroying us and bringing us into massive debt bondage is the product of the same individuals. We were trying to fight for our declaration of independence from originally. And so the Illuminati and the Jacobin agents begin to throw shade on so-called Jews of Europe with their, you know, their casuistry and their, their fake name of Jacobins, when really they're acting Jesuits, Adam Weishaupt, out of Ingolstadt University, and the, the Illuminati order being born out of the Ingolstadt University, which is a Roman Catholic university. So the same thing happening with the Skull and Bones men in 1833. They're going to be established at Yale, and it's a new form of the Illuminati out of Germany. So Having said all that, and having kind of brought all that to bear, that historical information that, you know, many, obviously, if you're listening to this show, you're probably aware of it. You're probably conscious of all those organizations and combinations in the background. But it was during that time that the papacy was receiving its quote unquote deadly wound and having been put under arrest in 1799 by the Napoleonic armies and then ultimately brought back to life in 1933 under Pope Pius XII, and the, the papacy being restored once again to its sovereign monarchy and its broad sovereign jurisdiction being established under modern law and recognized, obviously, under modern law. 
and the Pope being recognized as some kind of world leader of the Vatican City kingdom, you know? So it, it, it's really strange because it's the little horn, right? It's the little horn who has a great mouth to speak. So going into Revelation is that the little horn comes up and has a great mouth to speak and causes all the other kings to submit to it. So you can see that the, the, the Vatican is that little horn. It's that tiny little city-state that has the power of great geopolitical authority all over the world and causes great nations and great kingdoms to, to submit to it, right? Isn't that really what we're talking about? So let's discuss more about this relationship that the Vatican has with its concordats with all these different nations of the world. Remember that Pope Pius XII had a concordat agreement between the Vatican and Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Reich. So right now, today, we have this uh, Vatican system, this Vatican city, state, right, that has all this authority and power. It has, even has its own seat at the United Nations called the Holy See, and it also has a concordat with the CCP, which is a Chinese Communist Party. So let's learn more about that. So now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And as you know, our sponsor is courageously helping us to keep our show going here. So it's wendyslimited.com. Wendyslimited.com. So wendyslimited.com. Wendyslimited.com has all the hottest new styles and couture trends and latest boutique women's apparel and shoes and heels and flats and all kinds of just wonderful stuff. You have hives and honey uh, jewelry armoire. It's been a favorite lately. And we have, of course, Windsor crystal uh, lamps. I have one, uh, one in stock in particular that has been a favorite. So Wendy'sLimit.com is always open to help you get everything you need. Awesome Prada purse that we uh, saw that, that uh, Wendy's Limited just put up. So we have to think who out there wants to get incredible Prada fashion couture. You know that um, from what I hear, they're a favorite of many, many ladies out there, many women all over the place. I th I, in fact, I think you cannot find a single family member or wife or sister or aunt or grandmother or loved one or girlfriend or what have you that uh, does not love Prada purses. So if you want to be totally awesome, you have to eventually come to grips with wendyslimited.com. Wendy's Boutique Limited has all the hottest new styles and latest women's apparel, everything you need to be totally awesome. If you're a woman or if you have a, a woman who's someone that you love. And of course, we all love women because they're just so awesome. That's why Wendy'sLimited.com is so successful. So go check out Wendy's Boutique. Wendy'sLimited.com is the only place to go. And we have to recommend she's been totally 100% awesome to us and generous. So we are always going to be buying our jewelry, fine jewelry, gold, gold and silver jewelry. And all of our best boutique, couture, and designer trends are, we're going to go to wendyslimited.com. So check out Wendy's Boutique Limited.
So essentially, we're going to have to go to wherever the discussion is and whoever has the courage or the wherewithal or the intelligence to basically discuss the issue. We're going to have to go there and we'll take note, do our best to research and just stay on top of the, the topics altogether. But let's just listen to now we'll turn once more to uh, Steve Bannon in the war room and just we'll discuss how hypocritical and diabolical it is that the Vatican Jesuit elite operatives within the Roman system of religion there are ultimately going to make political agreements with the Chinese Communist Party, massive concessions in the Concordat for the CCP. Uh, and, and ultimately, there the, the CCP is being raised as the weapon against the West, a weapon against the, the Enlightenment and the Protestant Reformation. So the Westphalian system, the nation state and system of, of states is going to be uh, destroyed here by the, the CCP as it's getting ready to ultimately be used for what it was designed for. And ultimately, you can see that the city of London was behind handing over the Republic of China to these Stalinists and Bolsheviks under Mao Zedong and just leading the entire nation into a slaughter, a slaughterhouse where millions and millions were, were murdered in order to, but you know, by the young, the Red Guard, right? The, the revolutionaries had to ultimately kill off all the, uh, the older people. So they could uh, capture the nation and put them under a systematic, technocratic, communist control system, right? And, of course, that comes out of uh, Mao Zedong, who was a Yale and China graduate, right? So you can see the connections there with the Skull and Bones men. It's strange now because later we have to look at the issue of John Kerry going to the Skull and Bones men, right, going to China. What about the, the century of humiliation, I guess the Chinese Communist Party isn't very humiliated by the skull and bonesman John Kerry, the Roman Catholic, who's there to browbeat us all about environmental issues and et cetera. To lay out the the sophistry and the casuistry of the United Nations Plan 2030 to basically bring us back all into serfdom into the Dark Ages, right? So that's what this is all about. So let's listen to even Steve Bannon, who's a, a good Catholic, is absolutely just horrified by the idea that the Vatican and the Jesuit Pope would make a deal with the CCP. Right, we're covering Bolsonaro nonstop. Financial Times today has this massive story about Bolsonaro and this heat, this dead heat with the with the radical Marxist Lula down in Brazil. And what is it based upon? Is it based upon evangelical Christians? The populist president's social conservative coalition will continue to shape the country's politics, whether he wins or loses against Lula this weekend. And what they talk about is the power of evangelical Christianity as a political force. They estimate there may be, I think, 100 million evangelical Christians now in Brazil, many of those Christians, former Catholics. And the reason is the Catholic Church just got to be too um, uh, thin gruel for them. It didn't have the, the substance and the power of evangelical Christianity. Uh, bring in Jason Jones now. Jason, you, you fought for the... Uh, you, you, you have fought for the weak throughout the world, whether it's in Afghanistan, whether it's Hispanic, whether it's in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, whether it's in Iraq. Uh, you know, Christians throughout the world, they're being persecuted. Uh, you see, I think, and I've had the opportunity to meet him many times and spend time with him, Cardinal Zen, which is, you know, one of the holiest men. You can't rank him, but one of the holiest men in the epitome of what the church, and particularly the old church, stood for. He's on trial by the CCP. Uh, and no one in the Vatican, the Vatican on the opening of the trial announces an extension of the secret deal with the Chinese Communist Party, which allows the CCP to essentially pick bishops in this phony patriotic Catholic uh, church. 
Uh, Jason, tell us about Cardinal Zen and how it speaks to bigger issues right now geopolitically. Yeah, Cardinal Zen is a, is a humble servant of God. As you said, he's courageous. He's facing prison time simply for fundraising for legal expenses for uh, democracy activists. And there are eight other bishops that have been disappeared, vanished, and taken to black prison sites. One of these bishops, Bishop Julius, uh, he was disappeared simply for providing the sacraments and caring for disabled orphans. The deal that the Catholic Church, the secret deal between the Vatican and the CCP is that in exchange for the CCP choosing bishops, the Catholic Church will commit to not allowing anyone under 18 to receive religious education or to enter a church. That's the deal. That deal is akin to allowing Antifa to select the bishops here in the United States. And it's, it's, really, it's really absolutely unbelievable. But here's, as you said, I'm a Catholic. I am a, a thick soup Catholic right here. And um, there are some thin soup ca Catholics like uh, Secretary of State Perilin. But the irony and mystery of the church is 100 years from now, there will be icons of Cardinal Zen for sale and little trinkets at Vatican shops. And no one will remember the name Perilin. And I truly believe, as you know, and thanks to your work in the White House, I've been advocating for the Uyghur now for almost a decade. The, the ethnic minority, Muslim population, three million of them in prison, being carved up for body parts. Uh, Cardinal Sarando from the Vatican uh, went to one of these human trafficking, um, organ trafficking conferences and came back and said China is the best example of uh, Catholic social teaching in action. So it, it really is horrific. But I believe that the string, this thread of disappearing our bishops, smashing our churches. Steve, they are smashing churches, ripping out crucifixes from our churches and replacing them with surveillance cameras. They are disappearing Catholics across the country, including some of the most prominent Catholics like Jimmy Lai. I, I know, Steve, it's, it's unimaginable in this country to think that the government would be used to persecute prominent leaders. We were told when we gave China MFN that they would become more like us, and as you know intimately, we are becoming more like them. As a Catholic, we ha I have no deal. So once again, you see the underlying dilemma articulated there that the, the liberal Catholics and Roman Catholics here in the United States who are expecting that their moral understanding of the circumstances of the world will be enough to guide them, but they fail to understand that they have to absolutely submit to the papacy. And if the magisterium of Rome declares that black is white and white is black, then guess what, guys? You have to go ahead and just accept that gruel, whether it's thick or thin. So the, the deal that this gentleman does not make with the CCP is irrelevant because the real deal that the Vatican made with the CCP is overarching everything that these individuals here, these liberal individuals in the United States or Catholics, what they think. Okay, so it, the issue of personal conscience and pers personal liberty and volition doesn't come into play because you're expected to have absolute submission to your paternoster, to your father priests over in Rome. And the Jesuits have sworn permanent, unalterable, forever anathemas on all heretics and of course, you got to understand, guys, that according to the Council of Trent, all the Uyghurs in China are all heretics.
and it can be safely destroyed, according to your own theologians like St. Augustine, et cetera, et cetera. So you don't get your, your freaking rosaries out and wave them around like you got some kind of like it's a, a wand from Harry Potter, like you got some kind of amulet of power, right? You know, you're not, that's not going to do anything. That little trinket isn't going to do it. I mean, hey, hold on to it. It's your right. It's your religious freedom. Don't let me separate you from your, your thing. But it's not going to do anything ultimately because your power structure, your Jesuit-led Vatican imperial world government has decided who, who's distilled in Council of Trent ideology, which led to the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre. It led to all the different destruction of, of, the, of, of Europe, right? So for you to discount that, to be here in America and sit here and pray in front of the abortion clinic and act like you're not totally aligned with the Vatican, who's making deals with the CCP to get body parts from the Uyghurs, you're not aligned with that, but you are because you got your rosary and you're praying the papacy of Rome and all the sickening perverts and criminals and cartel psychopaths that are pouring over the border by the million, those are all being compelled to do so by the priests of your religion. So, so stop acting like you're so surprised when the priests of your religion have sent enemies, foreign invaders of your religion here to destroy your country. I mean, why, why should you be so shocked? Haven't you been paying attention to history or, or are you just playing this weird um, game of du- duplicity? I mean, that's, that's what Jesuitism is all about. You're, are you playing both sides here? Let's go look at the Jesuit oath and let's see who plays both sides against the middle. And right now, the, the white people here in this country, it doesn't matter if they're Roman Catholic or Protestant or if they're Amish, they're the middle. And they're, they're going to be destroyed by the plans that the World Economic Forum have brought to bear, which are a continuation of the Counter-Reformation. So let's listen to a little bit more about this whole issue of the CCP and their geopolitical relationship with the Vatican. People all over Today, we got Christine Caramo coming to the bottom of the hour, but honored to have uh, Maria Luisa Rossi Hawkins, the, the U.S., uh, I guess, head of news and correspondence for one of the most powerful media arms in, um, in all of Europe, and that's Mediaset. Uh, a lot going on. First off, uh, Reuters just announcing, I don't know, you probably haven't caught, just came across the wire. The Vatican has extended the, uh, for two years, I think, the secret deal with the uh, Chinese Communist Party. How does that work? The great the guy who runs Policy Sonar did an amazing book of how, and it didn't get a lot of play internationally, but his book really talked about the CCP infiltrating every aspect of really Italian corporate life. And people should remember in the pandemic, the first hotspot was in northern Italy because of the fashion industry, everything like that. The CCP, this secret deal with uh, with um, with the Vatican is outrageous. I want to talk on uh, Sunday at 6 p.m. here in Real America Voice have a one-hour special, if we can get that artwork up, with Bishop Schneider uh, live or from, we did it here in the uh, in the worm itself. It'll play 6 p.m. on Sunday night, an entire hour uh, with this amazing, amazing man who is a thorn in the side of the Vatican. How can the Vatican be signing a, uh, a secret de- a deal with the Chinese Communist Party? Well, it's a capillary penetration of the Italian state, the Italian government, I guess the religious realm and uh, the Italian public opinion through a capillary campaign of being there quietly. I believe that the CCP was able to penetrate every aspect 
of Italian society and the church. And we've seen it. We've seen it in the last, uh, um, in the latest years. And it's quiet. They it's, made a big it's deal. it's not sudden. They made a big deal about One Belt, One Road being anchored in Venice. Marco Polo was there. There's, this is the reverse Silk Road. And when you say, have they penetrated deeply into Italian business and, and, and the rest of society, not just in northern Italy where the fashion industry is? Absolutely. They penetrate where the state, the government is weaker, Steve. And it's easier to corrupt. It's easier to buy. It's easier not just to buy goods, but to buy off politicians. It is easier to make a, a campaign effective enough so that public opinion will stand with you. And this is exactly what they're doing, and this is exactly what they have done. Now, as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, you were the one who first talked about this and the close or too close relationship, and evidently, here you have it. Well, it's a secret deal, too. You Remember, being a signatory to the United Nations, as Vatican is, you can't have secret deals. I mean, this just flaunts everything. It's a secret deal. The reason it's a secret deal is obvious. There's money changing hands, but more importantly, there's a path to recognition by the Vatican and a throwing of Taiwan under the bus. There's no doubt about that. Remember, the CCP actually has the ability to pick the bishops. And Cardinal Zen is on trial. How do you sign this document with Cardinal Zen on trial in Hong Kong? This is a total and complete betrayal. I mean, the, the holiest man in the Catholic Church, Cardinal Zen, 90 years old, who stood up to the CCP, head of the underground church in mainland China, head of the church in Hong Kong, is on trial in Hong Kong, and they sign and announce the secret deal, that, which the CCP, during the 20th Party Congress on the last day, where she's going to announce tomorrow, he's out for flight. Do we have the clip? Do we have the clip of Hun Jintao? Okay, I'm about to show you something. Yeah, yeah. get the CCP. This is one of the most brutal things I've ever seen. Have you had a chance to see it yet? No, I haven't. All right, so here we're just cutting in, just to point out that their discussion here surrounding the issues with the the Vatican and their immoral and rather corrupt dealings with the CCP and their really attempt to empower themselves with the CCP and their, the sacrifice of their own bishops, who they could probably justify as liberal, not submitting to the magisterium and uh, you know send them away to be punished by the CCP. And of course, he's probably not even alive now. I can't imagine maybe if he's in prison, this Cardinal Zen figure. But the, the twisting... And the acrobatics here by the the speakers who are Roman Catholics to to look at the CCP with such recrimination and imagine that the CCP spies are all over Rome, corrupting and digging in and deeply embedding themselves you know, in, in Italian society in order to manipulate the Vatican is kind of a laughable and albeit neurotic way to look at the situation when you have to recognize that the truth of history reveals that the CCP is a puppet of the Vatican. And the Vatican has been grooming and adjusting and positioning the CCP as it is through the city of London and through Washington, D.C. And we always talk about Bush and Scrocroft and how they went over there after the Tiananmen Day massacres of tens of thousands of Chinese people just crushed under the tanks of their of their own government? Is that why we pay taxes to have tanks so they can run us over when we disagree? Well, apparently that's how it works in China. And of course, the the skull and bones bushies, the skull and bones Knights of Columbus, clandestine orders of the CIA and the papal knighthood orders power structure run over through Scrocroft and Bush, run over to the Tiananmen, uh, to the CCP and, and, and give them entrance into the World Trade Organization, right? So it's a continuation of what 
the city of London did by giving China over to the communists and a continuation of what Washington, D.C. did by giving the bloodthirsty psychopaths and the CCP entrance into our international system of trade. That was what Skull and Bones did for us. So let's stop thinking about Republicans and Democrats. Okay, let's start to look at what's really at play here and what, what is really going on. And I don't know whether I should believe these Roman Catholics when they're so aw shucks amazed at what the Vatican is doing when we Protestants and evangelical Christians and reformers have been knowing about the bloodthirsty reign of the Antichrist since the 1500s. So now everyone else is going to get woken up to the bloodthirsty tyranny of a revived beast system of Rome. All the kings of the world submit to it. All the knighthood orders, all the systems of the church and the priesthood, all the secret Freemason clubs of the Templar Knights, all, all of them, of the Scottish Rite, right? All, all of them get down on their knees and they all kiss the slippered foot of the Pope. Even the Mormons do it. That's why they have their Christmas carols and their weird Christmas, tr- you know, uh, Christmas trees and, and weird green Santa. It's still an extension of the system of absolute power over your mind and spiritual dominion by which they hold you enthralled. So we here, <laughs> we here at the Protestant local book club, the local Protestant Reformation church, we don't practice Christmas. We don't practice Saturnalia. We don't practice weird sun worship orgies to the dying sun god, right? We don't, we don't do that. That's what December 25th is all about. We don't practice it. If we're going to practice anything, we're probably throwing a little Hanukkah in there. It's at the end of the year. Get you a little blue and silver, uh, you know, decorations, do a little Han- Hanukkah gifts. It's something that Jesus apparently recognized and practiced. It was something that was established as far as the, the oil uh, being in the menorah of the temple and lasting for seven days. That, that, that was all something that happened just before the arrival of Jesus Christ and something that he, he practiced, the festival of lights, et cetera, et cetera. So we might do a little Hanukkah just to be real Christians and be really biblical. But when we look at the, the practice of all you fallen, backslidden Protestants and backslidden Baptists and backsl- backslidden Presbyterians and Lutherans and evangelical Christians, whatever you want to call yourself, as soon as you whip out the Christmas tree, you, you've slidden back to ball worship. You've put your ball's gatepost right next to the gatepost of Yahweh, right? Like as if they're equals. And you did it in your ignorance, but you still did it. You still, you still brought forth the wicked tree on the, the high black mass of Babylon, which is December 25th, which was with the... The Hierophants and the priest kings of Babylon always did their sacrifices on. So you have no right now to practice Christianity on the days of Babylonian esoteric magic, right? So this is the issues. These are the truths that we bring forth. And we don't need to shout two truths. We can just shout one truth because that's all there is. It's just one truth, guys. And you can shout many, many lies, but we continue to shout one truth. And that's all there is. There isn't two truths. It's idiotic. Who would even say that? So we will shout one truth in the face of your many lies, and uh, especially Romanists and you Roman ritualists. We won't say you're Christians, because you're not. We won't say that you're evangelicals, because you're not. We won't say that you're participators in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because you're not. You're really not. You're just holding into the ritual magic of Roman priestcraft over and over again, yearly, year after year, week after week. That's it. And you even switch the wrong day, even over on the Sunday. If you go back and look at the, the Holy Scriptures, the fourth commandment, anyone, anyone? Go back to the original. Don't look at the Dewey Rames. Don't look at the perverted, that perverted Latin Vulgate. All right, let's get away from that. 
Let's look at the original scriptures in the Hebrew, the original Greek. Let's go to the Textus Receptus and look at what are the Ten Commandments. It's the Fourth Commandment. The Fourth Commandment is very simple. You will remember that the seventh day of the Lord is the Sabbath day. And you will rest on that day and you remember to keep it holy and you will celebrate and have a joyous, wonderful rest day. And it's the celebration of the Lord's rest day on the seventh day. And Saturday, of course, Rome over time, over many centuries of weighing in their weird errors, literally a syllabus of errors. That's what the Rome represents. Weighing in and ultimately changing the, the holy rest day of God, the holy day of church. Church day would, would be changed to Sunday. So you guys are in error all the way around. Now, we're not part of the weird SDA movement or you know, but we're just here to remember the original scriptures. We're here to remember the original day that Jesus might have celebrated on Hanukkah. We're here to remember that we're not going to participate with all the, the Roman ritualism and we separate ourselves from it. That's the source of our blessing. And when you are able to recognize the truth, you can, of course, join us and separate yourself from the, the system of the world, which is all joined together in one harmony of Roman universal religious ritualism okay that's why everybody that's why mercedes-benz and walmart and target and, and the entire world of commercial business all have little christmas tree decorations with little reindeers and why does it all why does all that logic make sense to us why does the the customs and mores of santa claus in a sled with fake snow in florida why, why does any of that mean anything to us it's it all has to do with the establishment of roman religion as a dominion within your mind so we've got to cover a wide range of issues. We're trying to flesh out various aspects of a very difficult and rather shadowy subject matter, or rather occult and hidden topic that's hard to really elucidate just here in, in, in this kind of podcast format without having to go into 14 months of reading history texts, etc. So in order to really break it down, let's go to geopolitics and empire. Aaron uh, Kierty is going to just be discussing what his perspective of all this is. The Chinese social credit system, the draconian nightmare lockdowns that we have seen over the last few months in Shanghai, that the whole sort of COVID theater that has gone to maniacal heights in China, we could take that as a harbinger of uh, what could happen here if we're if we're not careful. And again, people are going to say, "Well, you know, carry out a year." Well, don't compare the United States to China. China's ruled by a dictator. Um, it's a it's a communist or a communist capitalist sort of hybrid state. Um, but we're living in a free democracy. So, you know, stop trying to scare people with these analogies to China. Well, let's go back to the very big beginning of the pandemic and the first massively misguided and massively harmful, uh, ineffective policy that we adopted, which was lockdowns. People forget the birthplace of lockdowns which were never a part of traditional public health and were never a part of the WHO or CDC pandemic guidelines prior to COVID. They're a wholly novel invention that was rolled out for the first time worldwide during the COVID pandemic. The birthplace of lockdowns, a term which comes from the penal system, right? prisons locked down when prisoners riot, the, the most highly surveilled and controlled setting on the planet is, is where that term originates. Um, but public health lockdowns originated in Wuhan, China. And Italy took its cues from Wuhan. And uh, Michael Singer and others have done some interesting work recently looking at how the public key public health officials 
in Italy, which was the second country to lock down, had strong ties to the Chinese Communist Party. So Italy locked down. Then Drs. Fauci and Burks in the United States decided that lockdowns were the way to go to manage this pandemic. And we could speculate on their motivations for that, but even just bracketing that for a minute, we locked down in March and the rest of the world very quickly followed suit. Right? If the United States is doing it, their public health agencies, which are supposedly the best and most scientific in the world, are doing it, then we better do it too. So in very short order, the Western world collectively lost its mind and it took its cues on managing a pandemic from the Chinese Communist Party and from CCP propaganda. China had announced, we now know this to be totally false, but it had announced in early 2020, that it had stamped out the virus entirely in Wuhan and surrounding regions through these draconian, highly surveilled lockdowns. That turned out not to be true. We should have known that it was not true. Uh, what we knew about this respiratory virus already should have convinced us that you cannot prevent the spread of the virus once it's out there by locking down. We now know that is absolutely true because despite the lockdowns, the social distancing, the masks, the plastic barriers. So I don't mean to put upon Roman Catholics without due explanation. And I'll intend to excoriate you for your attempt to, you know, follow the, the dictates of your conscience and to practice your faith as your freedoms here in America allow. Freedom of conscience, political liberty, religious tolerance, all this. But I want you to understand how inseparable your Roman Catholicism is from the system of the papacy and the hierarchical College of Cardinals, the curia, the structure there, and the geopolitical platform and the entire authority and the sovereign kingdom and the occult throne of Rome itself is an esoteric power structure that you are obliged to obey and you are mandated to be subjected to and subservient to absolutely without objection with no mental reservation, without any qualms of your conscience whatsoever. Or if you do, uh, you, you have to reject the dictates of your own conscience and to submit absolutely to the dictates and autocracy of the religious tyranny of Rome. So that in order to kind of lay this out and not to just to harp on it too entirely, but we have to go back once just briefly to Jay Dyer again and allow him to break down for us what it is that this absolute dominion is from Rome over Roman Catholicism and how it is that Roman Catholics owe a debt of allegiance to this foreign potentate, a foreign sovereign, a foreign monarch, an adversarial government from what had always been constituted as an enemy nation, a foreign power, right? These Roman Catholics in America are sworn and duly obligated to obey the priests of Rome and the papal authority before any other, because it's in their minds and according to their religious dogma it is the divine vicar of heaven it's the divine mouthpiece of god on earth so anyone who would not obey would be relegated to the status of heretics and liberals and schismatics and protestants so you you catholics here who are waving around your your rosaries here in america you have to understand that democracy and the bill of rights and the declaration of independence habeas corpus and the protection of rights under the, the protected individual rights under the law, those are things that are not prerogatives that Roman Catholics can enjoy. Because in a Roman Catholic system, you're absolutely 
sworn to submission to the temporal and spiritual supremacy of the papacy. And there's no if ands, or buts about it. There's no voting for another alternative party. Not, nothing like that. So for a thousand years before the appearance of America, the papacy had understood to be the, the religious totalitarian control system and out of which the American Revolution was a revolt against this Roman autocracy and religious system of murder and inquisition. So let's go ahead and let's listen to Jay Dyer just a little bit more and let have him tell us a little bit about exactly why you as Roman Catholics cannot expect to be able to have an argument against the Vatican and why your church's geopolitical authority and imperial power in the global government of its hierarchical superstructure that's emerging, how that is going to take time to emerge as the global government fascist dictatorship that it always has been. And so that's how we will be able to illustrate to you how the Roman system is ultimately the power base and the historical precursor of the system of the Antichrist. And we have seen, I think, in the last few years, uh, basically the complete capitulation of trad Catholicism. And uh, the trads are really mad at Lofton and have been going after him for months because, uh, you know, he's basically been more consistent than a lot of them by following Francis. I mean, at least Lofton understands that Francis does represent the legitimate successor to the office of Peter if you're a Roman Catholic. And so you can't reject the last 70 years of papal ordinary teaching. It, it, it doesn't matter if you think it's wrong. You don't matter in the Roman Catholic system because you are a lay person who has the duty to submit, not just to the infallible extraordinary magisterium, not just to the infallible ordinary universal magisterium, but also to submit with docility to the fallible ordinary teaching. That's Roman Catholic theology. And for all the critiques that we've done of Lofton here, he's correct about that. Now, I don't think Lofton and Roman Catholicism are correct. But it's funny because the same trads this week who are memeing at Lofton and talking about his mental gymnastics do the exact same mental gymnastics to defend their SSPX position and how they don't have to follow the ordinary teaching and it can it can err and it's fallible. And then you ask, okay, so I don't you, so we can reject uh, sainthood and many of the SSPX. Yes, I do not accept the sainthood of John Paul II or Paul VI or whoever. Okay, can you logically go back and uh, re and, and doubt the sainthood of Pius X? If you're in the society of St. Pius X, you see how ridiculous and how this undoes the whole system. And so uh, one point of credit goes to Lofton and Tim Gordon, who at least understand that uh, you can't be in this ridiculous halfway house schismatic position of the SSPX, uh, Taylor Marshall and others. And so uh, Tim Gordon used to be the co-host with uh, Taylor Marshall until Taylor Marshall decided that he was a trad and basically had this amorphous, ambiguous SSPX slash FSSP position where uh, you can pick and choose what you want out of the last 70 years of Roman Catholic theology from Rome. If you don't like uh, Rome's decisions on the Latin Mass, uh, you, can, you can toss it out. 
Now, but keep in mind, uh, most of the modern Roman Catholic apologists that are on the YouTube sphere, the internet sphere, guess where they all go? Oh, most of them actually attend the Eastern liturgy, the Eastern Rite churches. And there's a couple that attend the Latin Mass. So hardly any of them even really consistently attend the very liturgy that is what 90% of the Roman Catholic world attends, the Novus Ordo Mass, the new post-Vatican II, being both right and wrong on the doctrine of the papacy, which we've covered many, many times. I'm not going to rehearse all this, but it's going to be really evident here in the uh, Gordon clip because the Roman Catholic uh, institution is founded on the papacy a la Vatican I. And it's not just founded on a papacy that is ethereal, that allows you to uh, only have to accept three ex-cathedra ex statements and then reject whatever you want based on your reading. It does not allow you the ability to interpret canon law to do X, Y, Z as you see fit and as you want. None of those things are the prerogatives of any layperson in the Roman Catholic Church. And that's the Roman Catholic theological position. So, no getting out of Vatican II. We've done countless videos talking about many, many times about the authority of Vatican II and that you have to accept it. And the fact that Roman Catholics themselves are constantly arguing about the ambiguity of, Roman, uh, of Vatican II only shows that, as Pius X said in his encyclical Potengi Dominici Gracious, dogma cannot be ambiguous. And to say that dogma is ambiguous is to admit a modernist proposition. And so the people who defend Vatican II and admit that it's ambiguous are admitting the very principle that Pius X says is a modernist view, a la Vatican II. So it can't be all of these ways or both of these ways. So the set of Acontists are correct to point out, and the hardcore trads and the SSPX, they're correct to say that the last 60, 70 years of papal teaching contradict in various ways. And so the SSPX answer is to say in various ways that I don't have to accept what they teach. I only have to accept what's, quote, traditional, and that is always what each individual trad says is traditional. Likewise, so the, the, the set of accountants are correct to point out with the SSPX that clearly the papacy has engaged in multiple actions that constitute apostasy, heresy, and contradictions in regard to pre-Vatican II teaching. The Novus Ordo people say, no, that doesn't exist. It's somehow harmonizable. The Pope might make some mistakes here and there, but there's never any teaching error. Until so there we go. It's just a little bit to make sure that we round out the whole subject matter here. But the point is, is that you cannot ultimately belong to the system of Rome and also harbor divergent questions and expectations of separate political and religious views that are not totally uniform with their absolute dogma. So you don't have any right to object. You don't have any right to question. You don't have any right to see issues with the transgender gay flags in the Vatican. You don't have any right. You don't have any, if, if the Vatican decides to get rid of Father Pavone and allow everyone in the world to get free abortions paid for by the Vatican, then that's their new teaching. Then you have to submit to it. And if you don't want to submit to it, you have to leave and be separated from the so-called supposed pretense of communion with Rome or communion with heaven or whatever that is. So in order to, to, to be united with the Lord and to become morally accountable to the scriptures and to follow the leading of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to ultimately be separated from Rome. And that's the higher point that we're making here.
it shows their whole paradigm of um, I'm going to reject everything that, paper, that, that Frank does and teaches because I don't like it. And I think it's not traditional. Is the opposite of what he's bound to do as an individual Catholic, according to Vatican One. What does it say in Vatican One, right there? Wherefore, by divine and Catholic faith, all of the things that are to be believed, which are contained in the Word of God and found in Scripture and tradition, and which are proposed by the Church as matters to be believed as divinely revealed, whether by her solemn judgment, that is, ex cathedra, or in her ordinary universal magisterium. So the Roman See cannot err in its universal extraordinary teaching and its ordinary universal teaching. And that means that you can't have, what, well, what am I bound to believe? Wherefore, we teach and declare by divine ordinance, so this is dogma, that the Roman church, that is the see of Rome, possesses a preeminence of ordinary power over every church. That means if you're a Uniate, that means if you're a Melkite, that means if you're a Maronite, that means if you're in some FSFP church, or if in your, you're, even if you're in some ridiculous SSPX chapel and you think that, the, that you don't have to accept the last 70 years, you do not believe Vatican I. Vatican I says you must submit to the jurisdictional power of the Roman pontiff because he has ordinary power over every church. And it also applies to jurisdiction because the Roman pontiff has ordinary and immediate power over every Episcopal jurisdiction in the world, the whole church. So they just simply don't care or don't read or don't know what Vatican I tells them that they're bound to. And in fact, we can go into Denzinger, which I always go to. Denzinger says in multiple places that if you think you're only bound to what Rome says in terms of explicit dogma, that's a heretical opinion because it was an opinion of the modernists that was condemned. And we've done many streams on that. I don't, I'm not going to repeat for the 20th time the at least three places in Denzinger where it says you must follow not just the Roman C's official dogmatic teachings, you must also submit even to the Roman College and the Holy Office in their decision. And guess what? The Roman See has approved for the whole church the Vatican II documents and the Vatican II catechism. So you have to submit to those things. And even if you think there's errors in the catechism, you don't get to decide and pick and choose that you're going to reject it because you also have to submit with docility. So Lofton, ironically, on this point is more consistent than these people. Guys, do you read your own documents? Do you read Vatican I? There is nothing in Vatican I that allows or leaves the place anymore for the notion that a pope can be a heretic. In fact, it even says that the Roman See will have valid living successors until the return of Christ. So you can't have heretic pope that I get to pick and choose what I want to believe from him. Your whole system hinges on this. In canon law, immediately excommunicates you. It's the same penalty for heresy, apostasy, and schism. You don't just become a heretic by, quote, binding the church to something. This is another myth that the trads believe. 
Well, Francis isn't a heretic until he binds people to the heresy. Uh, when in the history of the church has that ever been a qualification for heresy, to bind people to it? Who in the Roman Catholic Church could even bind people to doctrines other than the papacy, ultimately? So in that dumbass argument, the only person who could be a heretic is the pope, because he's the only one that can bind everybody to a heresy. No, no, that's not the criterion for heresy in the Roman Catholic Church. Any teaching against any dogma, according to Leo XIII, is heresy. Any denial of any dogma, according to Leo XIII, counts as heresy that puts one outside the church. That's the traditional teaching. Now, the Vatican II people, they don't really care about the traditional teaching, so they'll have all kinds of reasons as to why they do and don't have to follow all this stuff. So the uh, people in Rome are attempting to introduce a completely different church, but it's still the papacy, still indefectible, still infallible, still has the promise of Peter, still a legitimate successor to Peter, but they're putting into place an entirely new church. Again, night and day with what Vatican I says will be possible, not even possible, according to Vatican I. By the way, the people that are neglected and excluded in this church are traditional Catholics. So they have the hardest contradictory cell of anybody, especially a set of Acontis, which is you need to come to our religion because it's based around a guy that is evil, who's the head of the church and destroying the church, but he's also the foundation of the principle of unity of this thing. Oh yeah, and by the way, he's persecuting us and shutting down the Latin mass, which is what you need. But he's also the head of the church, and he assures us doctrinal unity, preservation, and certitude of doctrine. So these people have the hardest sell in the world. And they're flipping out, and they're going nuts, and they're whatever that they do isn't really about us. It's not even about me, as much as they hate me. It's, not, it's none of that. It's because they're at war with their own logic, their own reasoning, this, this, these things are signifying the collapse and the defeat of the traditional Roman Catholic. Okay, whether it's people who believe in traditional morals in the Roman Catholic Church, or whether it's who believe, people who believe in Vatican I and not Vatican II, or the uh, people who just worship the Latin Mass, as if that's all you need, just continue Latin Mass, continue Latin Mass, which is just worship of a ritual. As if the faith isn't more important than the mass. You can have the faith without the mass. But a lot of these people are, uh, they believe in magic. They think that if you just have the Latin mass, it'll fix and cure everything. And we're not going to worry about what's going on in Rome. Well, guess what? You don't have the liberty in this religion to not worry about what's going on in Rome. Because Vatican I binds your whole church and your entire communion to what the guy in Rome is doing. Somehow still the decrees of Vatican I can be made sense of that the Roman See has not defected, but is teaching Freemasonry. It's a contradiction. Nobody wants to stay put in your pedo cult, dude. 